This morning, our series through the book of 1 Corinthians. As you're well aware, we've been now journeying through this book for eight weeks, and so this is our, uh, the eighth part of our series we've called No Perfect Church. No Perfect Church. A reminder, as we've heard many times now, that the church then, the church now, and the church everywhere in between has never been perfect. It's never what's marked us, our perfection, our competency, but rather what marks us is the perfection of the one whom we claim as our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and it's our confession of him that marks us, not our competency. What does Paul say early in this letter? God chose the foolish things in the world to shame the wise, and I'm sorry to tell you he had you in mind when he said foolish, okay? He had me in mind when he said foolish, But again, what marks us is our Savior, Christ Jesus, his perfection, his power, his wisdom, and our confession of him. And so we've seen that now for seven weeks, and we continue now this morning into part eight, which will actually take us to 1 Corinthians 11. And so you're beginning to see we're not looking at every chapter of this letter. We're we're skipping around a bit, but we are now in chapter 11, verses 17 through 34, part 8 of No Perfect Church. Hear the word of the Lord. Paul writes, But in the following instructions, I do not commend you, because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. Wow. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part. For there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, no, I will not. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever, therefore, eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers and sisters, when you come together to eat, wait for each other. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. About the other things, I will give instructions, excuse me, directions, when I come. Let's pray together. Oh God, we are thankful, as always, that you have spoken to us that you have not left us alone without instructions, without clues, without any inclination of what we're supposed to do or be. 
but you have been the God who has consistently revealed himself to his disobedient and broken creation. And so, God, we are thankful that you have revealed yourself to us in your scriptures. And we pray now that through that word who became flesh, Christ Jesus, and through your Holy Spirit, that we would understand these scriptures, that we'd be convicted where that's required, encouraged where that's needed. But in all things, Lord, May we see you high and lifted up. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I looked out this morning, and the sun was gone. Turned on some music to start my day. I lost myself in a familiar song. I closed my eyes, and I slipped away. It's more than a feeling. More than a feeling. When I hear that old song they used to play, more than a feeling. And I begin dreaming more than a feeling, till I see Marianne walk away. I see my Marianne walking away. Anybody know that song? Anybody done karaoke? All right. Boston, 1976, more than a feeling. Hopefully now you're remembering it. You can hear the synthesized voice. All right. More than a feeling, 1976, Boston. It's an iconic song, a great karaoke song, a great stadium song, you know, just one of those legendary rock songs, the synthesized voice, it's epic, it's Boston, all right? More than a feeling. The song, as we know, moves us because there's a song, and in every song there's lyrics, there's chords, there's a chart, but then there's more than meets the eye, right? More than meets the eye. The song can also speak to something deeper, and that's what the, the the singer is saying here. Every time he hears that one song, he hears the lyrics, he hears the notes, he sees it, but there's something he can't see that's happening. The song gives him a feeling, but it's more than a feeling. There's something unseen. There's something transformative even. There's something that is bringing him back to a moment, to a person, to a place, to an encounter that he can never erase from his mind. He can never forget. It's more than a feeling. It's more than just a song. There's something behind it. You see, this is exactly what Paul in chapter 11 reminds us of what's occurring in the Lord's Supper or communion. What we partake in here each and every Sunday, one thing I love about our worship here at Lake Osborne is that we do the Lord's Supper each and every week. We have this great sacrament that the Lord himself gave us each and every week in front of us. The word manifested, if you will, the sermon in physical form. Every time we gather on Sunday for the Lord's Supper, Paul is reminding us that in this meal, what the early Christians have celebrated up until our time, right? Christians from all centuries. What is happening here is more than a meal. More than a feeling, right? More than a song. This is more than a meal. That yes, there are tangible ingredients before us. There's bread. There's juice. There's a table. There's those little disposable cups, all right? And my daughter loves to collect from the pews when you all leave. It's her favorite thing, okay? Don't get in her way, all right? She's coming for it, all right? Down the aisles. Those little plastic cups. There's the tangible ingredients 
of the supper, of the table, but standing behind those ingredients and behind those elements is so much more. So much more. And apparently what's happening, if you recall, is that this is one of the things that Paul gets wind of and has to then write them and instruct. If you recall the context of this letter, Paul plants this church, but then is called away to a new work. And this correspondence develops between Paul and his former congregation as he now tries to disarm certain situations. And he tries to correct things that had already begun to go off kilter. Scandals and divisions and improper behaviors and even things like this where they're abusing something so basic, so essential to the faith. Paul has to write them and instruct them. And apparently this was one of the things that they had fumbled, that they had managed to, again, kind of be led astray on. And so in this passage this morning, in chapter 11, Paul reminds them, and by extension reminds us, of three things that we must keep in mind when we come to the table each week. Three things we must bear in mind as we come to the Lord's table each and every week. The three things are this. There's the posture of the meal in verses 17 to 22, the posture of the meal. There's the proclamation of the meal in verses 23 to 26. And there's the power of the meal in verses 27 through 34. The posture of the meal the proclamation of the meal, and the power of the meal before us each and every Sunday. So let's consider those in turn. That first, the posture of the meal. The posture. Now some of you might already be tripped up. You might already be scratching your head when we call this a meal. (laughs) A meal, right? A little thimble of grape juice, you know, a little crumb of a cracker. How can we call this a meal? You know, it's a postage stamp cracker. Aren't we overstating it just a bit? But again, we have to remember that how we do communion, how we celebrate the Lord's Supper, is a byproduct of the church, you know, becoming institutionalized over the years. You know, think of things, other things that would fall into that category. You know, fancy pastor's titles, Reverend so-and-so, Dr. Reverend so-and-so, the most reverend so-and-so, okay? They weren't using those titles back in the early church, okay? That's sort of a symptom of the church becoming formalized and institutionalized, all right? Um, Church signs. We have a great church sign on the corner, okay? I love that sign. It tells us where we are. But again, you wouldn't have had a church sign back in the early church. Denominations, okay, we've talked about that already. Paul can write back then to the church in Corinth, not the first Presbyterian church of Corinth, the first Baptist church of Corinth, the first apostolic, holy witness, Pentecostal church of Corinth, okay, right, whatever it is. There was one church, one church. Denominations are a byproduct of the church becoming formalized, institutionalized, and a lot of those things aren't bad. They're not bad. A lot of those things are even necessary, if you will. But it's a reminder that the church has come down the path historically. There have been certain 
shifts. And so when the earliest of churches gathered, they would not have gathered in a building like this with pews and with personal-sized communion elements. Instead, they would have gathered, as you may be aware, in a wealthy you know, patron's house. They would have gathered in someone's house big enough to accommodate the congregation at the time. And when it came down to communion, which we do know in the earliest of churches was celebrated each and every Sunday, it was the focal point of their gathering, the Lord's Supper. When it was taken, it would have been in meal form. It was what the critics, even, around the early Christians began to call love feasts. They weren't sure what was happening. They were feasts. They talked about the love of Christ. But beyond that, it was mysterious to them. And in fact, as you know, the earliest of Christians were accused of being cannibals. Cannibals? Why? Because the rumors were circulating that when they gather, they eat the body of Christ Jesus. And they drink his blood. Dracula. Vampires. All right? What is going on? Again, misconceptions, but it goes to show you in the earliest church, the earliest records show us that they gathered in a house, and they gathered around a meal, a full-blown meal. And Paul makes this clear because apparently there was enough food at communion where somebody could become gorged and drunk, which also indicates communion probably included wine, not juice, But again, someone could become gorged and drunk, and somebody else could do what? Could leave hungry and could leave overlooked entirely at the meal. And you see, it's that very last possibility that someone leaves hungry and overlooked that Paul here is taking issue with, and that Paul uses it as his launching pad to then instruct them about proper order when it comes to the Lord's table. Somebody could actually leave hungry? They could leave hungry and overlooked? Then clearly, clearly the posture of the meal, the posture of this table is being missed by those in the Corinthian church. And apparently the posture of the meal was beginning to devolve into just another meal that could be found in any social setting. A business lunch, you know, someone's birthday party, whatever it might be. It was devolving into just a regular meal in another social situation. The identity, the posture of the meal had been missed entirely. Think of this, for example. Think of IHOP, right? International House of Pancakes. But, as you know, there's been this big marketing ploy to now change their name to IHOB, International House of Burgers, right? Okay, International House of Burgers. And personally, I don't think you're ever going to see a single sign change. It's just a marketing campaign to tell you they now offer burgers in their menu, okay? But there was all this hoopla on social media and even in the news, the nightly news on NBC, Okay, about IHOP changing their name. And why was it so, you know, um, disruptive? Because they have an identity. They're the pancake place. Okay, you can't serve burgers. You're the pancake place. They've traded their identity, what they're known for, who they really are, which is a pancake place, 
And now they're trying to keep up with the latest trend, which is a burger joint. And those are everywhere. So it's well-intended, but you're seeing the point. They're losing their identity. That's what's happening here in Corinth. That was what was at stake for the Corinthian church. The true identity, the true posture of the meal was being lost. And instead it was being swept up into the normal currents and trends of any large gathering around the table that could have happened in any social setting in Corinth. And so you began to see then the regular human deficiencies take place. People were pushing and shoving to get to the table first. There was the early bird special, apparently, for whoever showed up first, and they could get gorged and drunk. And the problem was, back then, it's not altogether dissimilar now, the problem was those who could come first to the table back in Corinth were often the richest, the wealthiest. They were the elite. Why? They didn't have to work. They didn't have a grind, a nine-to-five grind, so they could come to the table early and eat their fill and leave the scraps, if anything, behind for those who were getting off the clock late. Again, remember the context of Corinth. There weren't just elite and wealthy people. There were also servants, slaves in the ancient Greco world. And so the gap was very large socially. And so again, you began to see it take place even at communion. The regular social deficiencies, the regular human competition, pushing and shoving. One guy's piling it on. One guy goes hungry. And Paul says, What are you doing? What are you doing? The posture is totally missed. The identity is totally missed. And he even, if you look in those verses too, he speaks of divisions. Look in verse 18. He says, when you come together as a church, I hear there are divisions among you. And I believe it in part. Paul is probably not speaking of the divisions in chapter 1 where he talks about, you know, people who had their favorite preachers. I follow Paul, I follow Apollos, I follow Peter. There were those divisions, but this division here in this chapter is likely along socioeconomic, racial lines. And so at communion, the one place where we're supposed to be together, it was beginning to fall back into its regular human rhythms. You're in the back, you're in the front, and there's no deference at all each other. And Paul says, when you, get to, when you come together, you might call it the Lord's Supper, but it ain't that. It ain't. That's the original Greek, by the way. But <laughs> Paul says, you might call it the Lord's Supper, but it's not the supper. It's not. Because the supper, the meal, is supposed to redeem you from the world. Redeem you from the world's posturing. And instead, the table began to do what? It reflected the world's posturing. Again, this is a table where differences are laid aside. Racial differences, social differences, financial differences, even ecclesiological differences. What does that big fancy word mean? Church matters. Things of the church, ecclesiology, the doctrine of the church. Even at the table, we lay aside ecclesiological differences, meaning what? Meaning if you survey this room, right, we're not going to agree on everything about what's happening in the church or what should happen in the church. It's not, it's not possible. 
Some might love that I wear a jacket. Some might think I need to also add a tie, okay? Some might think we should do all hymns. Some might think we should do some contemporary songs. You know, uh, if we change the color of the carpet, we're not, okay? But if we did, you know, anything. Or it could be bigger even. I reference denominations. We're a Presbyterian church, but we believe the kingdom of God is bigger than the PCA. It is. There are Baptist brothers, Methodist brothers, Lutheran brothers, sisters, okay? And so we recognize that at the table of the Lord Jesus Christ, all of those differences, secondary differences, don't get me wrong, there are certain things that should divide us if the gospel's at stake. But everything else around the gospel, secondary differences, are laid aside at this table. At this table. This is what brings us together. This is our commonality. Everything else is secondary. And so there's a posture that we must bring to the table each and every week, a posture of unity, a posture of deference, a posture of togetherness in the Lord Jesus. But this posture isn't just wishful thinking. It's not just touchy-feely you know, words. It's based on something. It has an origin, and that's the second point. The basis of our posture is what the supper proclaims. And this is in verses 23 and following, 23 through 26, where you hear that very well-known passage of Paul that even I quote when we do the table. What does the supper itself proclaim? How does that create our posture? Uh, My wife and I, we love the Food Network. Love the Food Network. Mostly because we love food, all right? But the Food Network, as you might understand, is the great middle ground, the great compromise for a married couple, in my opinion. Because it's food, you know, it's domestic, so the wife likes that. Has to do with restaurants and houses, and you know, it's, it's domestic, all right? But it also features competition, which the man loves, the husband loves. And I know I'm stereotyping, so forgive me, all right? But there's this great compromise on Food Network because I can watch like Iron Chef or Chopped and it's this all-out, drag-out competition, which I love. I love sports, love competition. And my wife loves the shows as well and so we, we rally around Food Network. It's a great, great you know, part of our relationship. All right. And on Iron Chef specifically, there is this thing they call the challenge ingredient where you know, these chefs are competing, but it has to feature one central ingredient. And every dish they make, it's usually three or four courses, has to feature that one ingredient. That ingredient has to be the star. In, or, in other words, every dish must proclaim that ingredient. It must shine forth. All right? This is what Paul says is true of the table. What is the star ingredient of this meal? What shines through? It's the death, the death of Jesus Christ. That's what the supper primarily proclaims. That bread, in one sense, and we'll get to that, is more than bread because it proclaims the broken body of Jesus. And that juice, in one sense, is more than juice because it proclaims 
the shed blood of Jesus Christ. And this meal creates and it expects a posture of unity and a posture of togetherness and reconciliation on our part. Why? Because the death of Jesus Christ, which this symbolizes, points to a greater reconciliation that has already occurred. And the greater reconciliation that has already occurred is that of God and man. God and man. Christ Jesus came to reconcile and bring back together that which was formerly divided. And what was formerly divided, as we know, was God and humanity, period. Period. There weren't certain humans excluded from the need of it. God and humanity writ large was what was broken up. Every skin color, every social class, every financial level, nothing excluded us from that. God and humanity were broken apart, and yet in the death of Jesus Christ, what was being proclaimed was that now these two parties could be reconciled. They could come together and be unified. And so that's why we come together then and we admit. We admit who we are. We admit our need for the death of Jesus. And recognize again that we don't come to the table with an asterisk by our name. Well, this person next to me needs the death of Jesus, but I'm doing just fine, thank you. No. We come, all of us, acknowledging that commonality we talked about earlier in the service, that we're all sinners. We're all sinners. And we come to the table then proclaiming again together our need for a Savior, our need for salvation, which was accomplished in the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so the reason, again, I love doing this every week, is because as you know and as I know as well, We don't just proclaim to a world out there that we need this, but we proclaim to our own hearts that we need it. Because just like the Corinthians, we are tempted, we're tempted over time, to eventually, even in the church, structure it the way the world is structured, where there's haves and have-nots where there's power brokers and, you know, those underneath the power brokers, and there's a pecking order even in the church. And so this table is that weekly reminder. It squashes each and every week that temptation we have to reorient even the church into the order of the world. And so there is a posture, there is a proclamation, and then lastly, lastly, There's a power in this meal. There's a power. Look in verses 27 through the end. It's somewhat of a scary text. Paul warns us of judgment, warns us of of guilt and condemnation that can come if the meal is taken improperly. But you see, all those things simply reinforce for us that this is indeed more than an average meal. And it's more than an average meal, and we come to it reverently because of who we meet at the table. Do you see? There's another guest present. 
at the table. We were recently, my wife and I, in Disney uh, a number of weeks ago, and we stopped at a, a Wolfgang Puck Express, which is like, you know, Wolfgang Puck, well-known chef, but it's like his quick-serve version, so it's affordable and fast, which is great. Um, and we were sitting there eating lunch, and I was eating a sandwich, and I looked up, and there was this big painting of Wolfgang Puck. I looked down at the table in front of me, and the guy sitting there looked a lot like the painting. And I told him, I go, is that, is that Wolfgang Puck? And it was, which was pretty cool. You know, there he is in his own restaurant visiting. And so we shook his hand and took a picture and, you know, ruined his meal. So, because then everybody else came up afterwards too. So, you know, sorry, Wolfgang. But, uh, but it was cool. You know, there he is in his own restaurant at the table. You see, the same thing's happening here. Same thing's happening here. At this meal, we meet not just the, you know, the manager of the restaurant, the founder of the restaurant. We meet the living God at his table. We meet the one who enables us to be back in relationship with God. Because as you know, in the Holy Scriptures, in the Old Testament, you can't come to God on your own. You can't come to him face to face. A mediator was required. That mediator is Jesus Christ. And he came to indeed provide that mediation, to provide that bridge back. There was life, death, and resurrection. But now he has ascended to heaven, and he sits at the right hand of God the Father. But in his departure to heaven, he has left behind certain places where he tells us and he promises us his presence can be found. He will meet us certain places, though he has ascended to the right hand of God. And one of those places is the table. It's a means of grace where he literally, like Wolfgang Puck did for us, he pulls up a chair and he communes. He communes with you. Isn't that awesome? The Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, the creator of all, pulls up a chair and he communes with you. With you. And so this is a very, very powerful meal. Something is happening there. We don't go as far as our Catholic brothers and sisters and say that this is transubstantiated, meaning that that's the actual body of Christ and his actual blood. We don't go that far. And I could talk to you afterwards about why we don't go that far. It's a long conversation, <laughs> okay? But it's basically a misconception, in my opinion, of their time period, along with some categories they borrowed from Aristotle, and it led to this doctrine, okay? We don't believe that that is the actual, literal body of Christ that was transformed before our eyes by my words. It was not transubstantiated, okay? We don't go that far. But we also don't go so far the other way, like some of our Protestant brothers and sisters, and just say that this is a symbol, that it's a you know, just a memorial, that's it. No, it's a sacrament. It's a sacrament, meaning that it is a true means of grace where God is actually working in your life. He is invoking his own presence into your life. That is why Paul says what he says. If this was just a memorial, just a symbol, 
that meant nothing other than what you see before your eyes, then why were people getting sick who took it improperly? Why were people dying in the Corinthian church if it was just that? It's a sacrament. The Lord's presence is truly here. We come to the table. There's a true power that stands behind it as something ordinary, like these elements, ministers to us this extraordinary presence of God through the Holy Spirit. And so that's why Paul tells us, and I remind us again as we take this in a moment, that we should prepare ourselves each and every week to receive the supper. We should examine ourselves, but not in this morbid, introspective sort of examination. You don't have to confess every known sin before you come to the table. Why? Because you can't. You can't. And you won't. So you don't have to polish yourself up because the warning that, God, that, excuse me, the warning that Paul gives about receiving these elements improperly, we tend to think just applies to non-believers. Don't let a non-believer you know, sneak in the back as if they're trying, right? Don't let a non-believer push through the doors and take the communion, okay? That would be a problem. We would talk about that. But there's also a warning to believers here. Paul's saying, don't take this improperly. Meaning what? Meaning, we of all people understand what this actually means and the cost it actually required of our Savior. And so we can't come to this table every Sunday understanding what it means, the unity it should display, the togetherness it should display, the self-deference it should display, and take these elements, but then go back to our lives and live the same way. Do you see? That's Paul's point. Don't take it irreverently and flippantly. Don't disregard the body of Christ and what it's now calling you to be. So when you take these elements, don't take them, you know, fearfully. They're for you. But take them reverently, understanding that if we eat this table, if we come to this table, we are claiming to be the Lord's. So then, when we leave this table, we should act like the Lord's the other six days of the week. The time in between the tables, Sunday to Sunday, we now should embody what this table signifies. And so when you leave this morning, show your brother, your sister, the deference, the service, the humility, the sacrifice that our own Savior showed for us. And I'll close with this. Remember, when we come in a moment, that cliche statement, you are what you eat. You are what you eat. We don't like that phrase when it comes to the world. We think of sodium and fat and cholesterol. Okay, that, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm becoming all those things. That's terrible. But that cliche is beautiful when it comes to the Lord's table. You are what you eat. At this table is your salvation. At this table is your mercy and grace. And the reason it's powerful and the reason it's a sacrament is because each and every time we take the table, we preach that good news to ourselves again, and it slowly actually transforms us. That God promises us that you are actually becoming more and more like Christ Jesus. That is the doctrine of sanctification. And so you are increasingly becoming, thanks be to God, what you eat. 
You are increasingly becoming more and more like the Christ who gave himself for us. Amen? That's the good news. This is more than a meal. And so in just a moment, we will prepare ourselves to receive this meal and to once again be reminded that there is a God who loves us. And he loves us so much that he would give the broken body and blood of his own son to call us his own. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you that you would spare nothing for our pardon. That you would indeed give the body of your son Jesus in his own blood to pay the penalty for our sins, to bring us back into your family. And so God, I do pray that as we receive these elements each and every week, we be reminded not just of your great love, but of who you are now calling us to be. And so God, again, use these common elements, we pray, to remind us of that uncommon grace, that uncommon goodness that is ours in Jesus Christ. We pray this all in his name. Amen.